Welcome to Beyond Your Why podcast, where we go beyond just talking about your why and actually help you discover and then live your why. You see, we believe that knowing your why, that driving force behind every decision you make and every action you take is the essential first step to really knowing yourself. It allows you to move forward faster and have a bigger impact. If you're already a fan of the show, then you know that every week we talk about one of the nine whys, and then we introduce you to somebody with that why so you can see how their why has played out in their life. This show will be more powerful for you if you've already discovered your why. If you still need to do that, head over to whyinstitute.com and discover your why today. It'll only take you about five minutes. Now let's meet today's guest. Welcome to Beyond Your Why podcast, where we go beyond just talking about your why and actually helping you discover and then live your why. So if you're a regular listener, you know that every week we talk about one of the nine whys, and then we bring on somebody with that why so you can see how their why has played out in their life. And so this week, we're going to be talking about the why of make sense, to make sense of the complex and challenging. So if this is your why, then you are driven to solve problems and resolve challenging or complex situations. You have an uncanny ability to take in lots of data and information. You tend to observe situations and circumstances around you and then sort through them quickly to create solutions that are sensible and easy to implement. Often you are viewed as an expert because of your ability to find solutions quickly. You also have a gift for articulating solutions and summarizing them clearly in understandable language. You believe that many people are stuck and that if they could just make sense out of their situation, they could develop simple solutions and move forward. In essence, you help people get unstuck and move forward. So today I've got a great guest for you. His name is Len Hurstein. He has over 30 years of experience in business and brand marketing. And prior to founding his marketing and events company, Manage Camp Inc., Lynn innovated, managed, and grew brands for major consumer packaged good marketers, including Campbell Soup, Coca-Cola, Nabisco, and others. Since 2015, Lynn has served as a reserve deputy sheriff with the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Colorado. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here, Gary. Thanks for having me. And this is going to be fun. So very interesting background and very interesting what you're doing right now. But take us through your history a little bit. Take us back through where did you grow up? Where did you go to high school? What were you like in high school? And how did you progress to where you are today? Wow, we're going way back. Way we're back. going back. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, good. Well, I grew up in New York. I grew up in the western most part of Long Island, New York. So my family's from Brooklyn. A bunch of people moved from Brooklyn out to this area where I went to high school in the Valley Stream. And what was I like in high school? Man, I wish I could say I was like the coolest kid, but I don't think I was. <laughs> I was uh, I straddled this weird line because I was an athlete. So I played soccer, and baseball and basketball and stuff. But I was also a student and was in uh, kind of like the AP classes and stuff like that. So I kind of like walked this fine line between kind of athlete and academic and just kind of learned how to get along with a lot of different people and play a lot of different roles and friendships and stuff. So that was kind of where I came out. I went to college at Cornell University mm -hmm. in New York and studied marketing. 
and came out of there and went to work in consulting. So I was kind of one of those guys who didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I consulted <laughs> that helped me figure it out. So I worked for Anderson consulting, which was back then called Anderson consulting. Now it's called Accenture. And basically in the first year or two figured out that what I got hired for, which was computer programming. So they take you out of college at that point, they send you to this like university that they built for themselves in St. Charles, Illinois, and they teach you and they taught us how to program in COBOL 2, which is an old, <laughs> old mythic language. Uh, and so and it didn't take me long to figure out that that was not what I wanted to do. I was not good at it. I did not enjoy it. So I made the switch over to what was called change management. So I worked on the teams that helped organizations go through the changes that these new systems that we were building made for them. And so I did that for a couple of years and then I went back, got my MBA back at Cornell again and got my MBA in marketing and made that switch over to consumer packaged goods marketing, went to work for Nabisco and Coca-Cola and Campbell Soup before I realized that I was going to a lot of conferences and found myself coming home early from a lot of them back in the days when we had travel agents that we would call and stuff and just decided to put together the conference that I would actually want to go to. I was having a hard time finding it. And that's what my conference, which is called Brand Manage Camp, became. We just did our 19th annual back in May. This one was virtual, of course. So we did that. And, and then, like you mentioned, five years or six years ago, almost seven years ago, I became a volunteer police officer, basically, sheriff's deputy here in, in Douglas County, Colorado, which was a whole new path for me. It was, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but it was, you know, just I was looking for a way to give back and do something different. And, um, and this just kind of came up and uh, went through a whole academy, went through a long field wow. training process and became a deputy. And then I started seeing all this overlap. I was learning some things that were surprising me. I was learning things that I could bring back to my business and personal life. And that's where this concept of complacency, I learned about how complacency kills. And I learned about how we fight it with vigilance and law enforcement. And I saw a lot of synergy back to business in terms of complacency kills brands, it kills businesses, it kills organizations, it kills personal relationships. And so I wrote my book that just came out, it's called Be Vigilant Strategies to Stop Complacency, Improve Performance and Safeguard Success. And it's all about specific strategies you can use right away to fight complacency in your own life, whether it be work or home with vigilance. Mm, wow. That's it. That's my life, man. Man, that was a quick <laughs> one. I like that. So let's dive into that a little bit. So when you were in high school, you were the athlete and the student. Were you the guy that people would go to if they had problems or issues and say, hey, man, Len, can you help me? I got something going on. Can I tell you what's going on? And you were the guy that would help them. You know what? I'd like to say I was, but I think the honest truth would be no. I don't think that happened back then. I don't think I had kind of gotten into that role yet. We were more about where can we find some beers and get down to the boardwalk? You know, it was a simpler life back then, Gary. There weren't, didn't seem like there was many problems to solve. Nothing. But. Everything was easy to figure out. And so getting into programming was not really your direction you thought you were going to go. You just kind of were forced in that direction. I wouldn't say I was forced in that direction, but that was at the time. So we're talking 1991 at this point at the time consulting, those gigs out of college were pretty high, relatively paying. I think the number was like 33 grand was the starting salary. And I, that was huge, man. That was enormous. So it was one of those things where I didn't really quite know what I want to do. I figured I probably wanted to go back to grad school at some point, but I needed some years to figure out what that was going to be about. And so I took that job and that initial thing in terms of programming was just turned out not my thing. 
But it was good because it helped me figure that out. And it helped me figure out, I went down this path of change management, which is helping people solve problems that are brought on by change. And then during those jobs, I ended up doing some consulting work with some of our clients were marketing companies per se, like Pepsi and AT&T. And that's when I started getting really excited about marketing. That kind of then gave me the confidence that I knew kind of what I wanted to do. And that's when I went back for uh, MBA. Yeah. So as a change management agent, I guess, what did you do? What was that? So, I mean, basically what would happen is a lot of the time I spent working in the government sector. So we were coming into state tax departments, state DMV, stuff like that, mostly tax stuff, putting together new systems for them, new computer systems to help them manage the flow of information, manage the data that they have, basically do the things that they had to do. And so when those new systems would come in, there would be enormous changes to workflows and to jobs and to what was required of people. And so the change management job was really about mapping out where are we today where are we going to be in the future and how do we get people between there with the least amount of pain, right? So it was a lot of reorganization, re-engineering of jobs and processes, and then coming up with the training to help people get the skills and the knowledge they needed to move forward. And that sounds like it fit you pretty well. It did. That was kind of right up my alley. That was right up my alley. And now that you told me I'm a make sense guy, that now it makes <laughs> all sense to me. Exactly. It'd be interesting when you go back to one of your high school reunions to find out if your classmates felt that way about you. Like, you know what? Len was somebody that I could talk to. Len was somebody that if I had a problem, that's where I would go because he'd help me figure it out. It'd be interesting to ask your classmates that question because I bet you they're going to tell you, yeah, you were that guy. I mean, yeah, you were partying and yeah, you were an athlete and all that. But if I had something I needed to talk to, someone I needed to talk to, I was going to go talk to you. Yeah, it's possible. Based on your why, (laughs) I would bet that's the way it is. So you were in change management and then you decided to go to Cornell. Why did you switch from change management to marketing? And why did you feel you needed an MBA? Yeah. So like I said, I started doing some work within companies that were what I would consider marketing driven companies. And I started to see that within certain companies, and it's a certain type of marketing. So, I mean, everybody has a different definition of marketing. I talk more about brand management. And to me, brand management is like running many businesses, right? So when you would run a brand for Campbell Soup or Coca-Cola or something like that, you would touch everything, the P&L, sales, manufacturing, research and development, advertising, which would be the traditional way people would think about marketing. But there's all these other elements that go into what I would consider marketing or brand management. And that just really started to excite me, being kind of at the hub of this wheel and kind of influencing everything and driving this business forward towards more profitable, more innovative, more successful future. And so once I saw that, I started thinking about how do I get there, right? I started processing the information and say, okay, here's where I want to be. What's the way to get there? And it became fairly evident to me that if I was going to do that type of job at the type of company that I wanted to do it at, which was like a Coca-Cola, those types of things, I really did need to go back to school. I did need to get my MBA. It was going to get hard. You know, if I wanted to come in through like maybe a sales role or something, and then kind of work my way over into marketing, I could have certainly done that, I'm sure. But the quickest way for me to get to where I wanted to be was to go use that advanced degree as my pivot point and move into a new area. And so then you did that. And then through that, you 
learn the type of education that you're going to get at these events didn't make sense because I was bored to death and wanted to leave. So you created your own. Yeah. So, I mean, as a brand marketer, I'd go to a lot of conferences. I'd go to several a year. When I was at Campbell Soup and I was working on some soups that we were marketing to kids, I would go to kids marketing conferences. They're all very niche and specific, right? And they would look great on paper and I would get there and they would serve me a cold bagel for breakfast. And then you'd show up and you'd be sitting there and maybe a bunch of people trying to sell me things as opposed to telling me anything useful. This was back in the days where if someone showed up with a Mac and nobody had a dongle, like everything broke down, right? And so <laughs> there was just like execution wasn't great. The content wasn't great. I wasn't getting anything actionable I was walking away with. And I just, in general, felt like they were a big waste of time. And so literally this is it's a cliche, but it's hundred percent true. This will date me and tell you how old it is. But I was on a US air flight from New Orleans back to Philly and I started writing down on a cocktail napkin what the next conference I was going to go to had to offer me. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find anything that matched those requirements. And my wife got tired of hearing me talk about it and told me to do something about it. And so I did. I generally do what she tells me. That's how we, <laughs> we made it this long. And so what is it you wanted in a conference? What did you write down? Yeah. So I wanted something that was going to deliver actionable insights that I could use. I wanted something that was going to be a broad look at brand management. It wasn't going to be so narrow that every topic kind of overlapped and, and was repetitive with each other. It had to have speakers that everybody needed to be keynote quality. I didn't want like one great speaker and then a bunch of people from industry who look good on paper. You know, the thing I started to see, at least in the conferences I was going to, so I'm not making, this is not a broad thing, but in the conferences I was going to, there was this kind of move towards multi-track events and a lot of panel discussions. And a lot of it was built around getting a lot of speakers in there who had big titles and big companies that they can then use to pad their attendance list with like, oh, look at all these great companies that are going to be here. And then they could sell sponsorships. And so it was all about the sponsorship money. It was all about the sponsorships. And so what I was looking to do is I was looking to create a conference that was simpler and easier to go to that delivered actionable insights, a single track conference where there was no choices to make. It wasn't super complicated to figure out what I was going to go to. And I wanted it to be attendee focused, not sponsor focused. So I wanted to be focused on delivering actionable insights people could use right away along a broad range of topics. And it had to have great food and it had to be executed flawlessly. So, I mean, other than that, it was pretty simple things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to find one like that even today, right? And so sounds yeah. like you created that. Is that what your events are like now? Yeah, that's exactly as We focus heavily on execution. We focus heavily on making sure everything runs smoothly. We value the fact that people are taking money and more importantly, time away from their families and their offices and stuff like that to come spend it with us. And so we value that a lot, right? And so we want to make sure that not only do they get a great learning experience, but that seating is comfortable. Everybody can hear everything. When they break for lunch, there's hot food and great choices and healthy food available. Just every step along the way, we wanted to make a lot of people, especially in marketing, talk about experience. We have a lot of great speakers who have talked about customer experience and things of that sort. But what I found was the conferences weren't living that. They would bring in speakers to talk about it, but they weren't actually living it themselves. They weren't actually creating a great experience. And so that's really what we set out to do. Mm. And so then tell us about your first conference you threw. 
The first one we threw was in Philly and it was in 2003. So we were in this kind of post 9-11 timeframe where the travel industry had just been decimated. Hotels were hurting. Everything was really hurting. And so we were able to come in and get this like sweetheart deal on a contract with a hotel, which was a big deal because in the conference industry, you have to put a lot of money out front and you got to guarantee a lot of things in order to get space and hope people come. And so yeah. we were able to get this great deal so that our risk was really low. I was still working for Campbell Soup at the time. So for the first four years of starting my business, I still worked full-time for Campbell Soup. And so I was trying to kind of build the proof of concept here. And so it was in Philly, I think 90 people showed up is uh-huh. what happened. And it was in this small ballroom and we had great food. We had sushi. We had all these things. And we thought we had a great experience. And then we look back 19 years ago, how different it was in terms of what the AV capabilities are now and the things we can do with the stage and the slides and everything that's going on. So it was pretty interesting. It was there. And I think what we were able to succeed on really early is we were able to get speakers at our event that were well beyond our budget. And somehow I was able to negotiate it. So we had a guy by the name of Seth Godin, who's written a ton of marketing books and is a huge deal. And then we had a guy by the name of Malcolm Gladwell, I'm sure you've heard of, right? Probably doesn't speak for less than like 75 to $100,000 now. And, you know, we got them for next to nothing back then. So, I mean, those types of things up front really help us get started down this path. And so Mm. a lot of things kind of lined up for us that went in our favor back in those early years that helped us kind of learn quickly and learn cheaply. So what was the title and topic of your first event? So it's interesting, yes, because as we moved on, we stopped having topics, right? So the first event I think was marketing in turbulent times. Okay. Like it was something about marketing in turbulent times, right? But I started to realize that what happened because the first like two or three years, we changed our theme every year. Like it was always a marketing conference, but like you said, we kind of like marketing in turbulent times or something else. And then we realized, well, gosh, because of that, we kind of have to rebrand every year. Like we have to convince people that this is the topic they need to come uh, to hear more about. And the more that you kind of focus in on a specific topic, the more you have that problem where you have overlapping things and people talking about the same things and maybe contradicting each other and all this. And so after a couple of years, after a few years, we moved away from kind of re coming up with a new topic every year. And we just kind of the tagline for the event has been and and still is fresh thinking starts here. So for brand marketers who are looking for fresh thinking for their brands, for their organizations, this is the destination each year. And so it kind of made it a lot easier for us. We didn't have to come up with a new, you know, we didn't have to like brainstorm a whole new thing, you know, like what would it be this year? It would be like marketing in turbulent times, right? Like it's every year is marketing in turbulent times. It's never not turbulent. Like nobody ever wakes up and they're like, you know what? Like marketing is easy this year. It's gotten easier. Like they're actually giving us more money to do less. It's fantastic. Yeah, great deal. So as you, so you're, you got out of actually working with Campbell Soup and the event was your business or was there a different business besides the event? No, the event was the main part of the business. We also okay. did consulting work. Okay. So we also did consulting work, but the event was the main part. And so then we move forward to COVID mm-hmm. and no events. Yeah, no, the things got shut down pretty quick there. We actually, so it was 
2019 end of 2019 is when this all started coming. Right. And we were like, yeah. Oh, this is no big deal. This is a China thing. This is not a U.S. thing. Right. It was back what people were thinking back then. And then we were like, came in and we had our 2020 event planned for September. And we would generally start promoting that in January. And we did, we started promoting it. So January, February, we're promoting it and things are starting to get a little bit more dicey and some people are signing up, but we can see that things are slowing down. And then March hit and everything shut down. And we're like, I don't think we could do a live event. It was back before that realization had settled in. And so quickly we realized, hey, we've got to pivot. We've got to pivot to something different. This is going to move to virtual somehow, but we don't know how to do the virtual because we've been complacent and 18 years of doing it live. It was always going to be that way. And so we never built our kind of virtual capabilities. So we had to do that real quick and pivot around and create our first ever virtual conference. Mm, wow. And so from 90 people in 2003, how did it grow and what was it like before the pandemic? And now what is it like today? Yeah, so it was always what I would consider an intimate conference. Yeah. So because we're not focused on sponsorship, we're just focused on attendees. We didn't have like hundreds of sponsors and hundreds of speakers. And so we would only have like 12, 13 speakers. We'd have maybe two sponsors and then everybody else was attendees. And so we were in like the 400s. We get okay. to like the 400s is like where we were at. Um, yeah. For us, we're able to deliver a good experience to everybody that way. And it was plenty fine for us. COVID hits, all that's out the window, right? And so now we're in this whole brand new world of virtual and everybody's giving it away for free and nobody wants to pay for stuff on the virtual stuff anymore. And the whole value proposition has changed. And so you can't even compare us. It's like apples to oranges. So right now our goal in this kind of virtual timeframe is just to continue our relationships with people and stay out there with content and ox. And honestly, like I've been spending a lot of time on the book. And so we did our 2021 brand manage camp back in May and generally we do one a year. So that kind of buys us right now. We're just kind of sitting back on that side and waiting to see what happens. We've learned over this last year and a half, we just can't predict what's going on. We have these ebbs and these flows in terms of events. And quite honestly, my event and our event is probably among the last types of events to come back. There's trade shows, there's industry and association events. There's Those things are where people need to get out and sell to each other are different than my event, which is a learning event. Mm. And so it's probably going to be among the last ones to come back to the live forum. So because so much goes into planning a live event and there's so much financial commitment, we're just kind of waiting to see how these next few months play out before we plan our next one. But I took that opportunity all throughout that time to write my book. And I've been spending a lot of time doing the law enforcement stuff as well. So that's been keeping me busy. So there's going to be people listening to this Mm -hmm. that have their own events and they've been doing them just like you have. And then they had to switch to virtual. So what was it like for you to go from live to virtual? And how do you think the effectiveness is of virtual versus live? There's pros and cons. There's definitely pros and cons. I think in terms of the convenience of it, in terms of the cost of it to the end user and the ability to have stuff on demand and kind of see it on your own timeframe, there's a lot of positives there. The inability to get together in person, I think a lot is lost there. And the inability to kind of carve out your time. When you're in a live event, you kind of put your phone on mute and you 
put on your out of office email answer and you sit there and you listen and you learn. And when you're sitting in your home or sitting in your office and you're watching a virtual thing, there's a million other things competing for your time and your attention just by nature. I mean, it's not anybody's fault. You just nearly impossible to put the same amount of attention into one of those things as you do a live event. So I'm still a big believer in live events. I think they'll be back, but the way we approached it is kind of, again, makes sense within this makes sense thing um, (laughs) is that we took a step back and said, you know what, we're going to approach our pivot into virtual the same way we did when we first started our live conference was to take a look at things and figure out what's missing. What are people getting wrong? So we kind of sat back for a little bit and we saw that a lot of people were just trying to take their live events and turn them into virtual as if there was no difference other than the delivery mechanism. And the reality is that's not true, right? Like people learn differently. People have different attention spans to people do things differently. And the other thing is that people were diving in to this virtual world and they were not understanding the tools that they were using and the best way to use them. So the way that manifested itself for us is that we looked at it and I said, you know what? We're going to do this virtual. We're going to have all these speakers, right? We don't typically do Q&A in the middle of a speaker session, right? Our speakers get up and speak in a live event, 50 minutes. Well, first thing we said is 50 minutes is way too long. Like we can't do that in a virtual world. So we're looking at 20, 30 minutes, right? But the other thing is what I saw was there's a lot of this people calling things conferences that ended up looking a lot like webinars, mm-hmm. right? Someone with like a talking head in the corner and the whole screen was a slide and you're looking at the slides the whole time. And I was like, we hire our speakers because they're engaging and entertaining and energetic. And we don't hire them for their slides. Like we hire them for them. And if I was doing a live event, I would never have them sit off in a corner somewhere and just have everybody stare at the screen. Mm. Right. And so what we did is we spent a lot of time and energy working with every one of our speakers. We pre-recorded all of the sessions, right? So we pre-recorded all the sessions, but we did it with professional production, right? So slides coming in and out, only being shown when they needed to be shown, having our speakers stand up and move around and be active, right? And doing all these things that are not just someone sitting in front of a webcam. And then what we did is our conference platform allowed us to then have our speakers attend while we were airing their session. And then they could interact with attendees in the chat room and answer questions in real time. And then we would bring them in on a live stream as soon as their session ended to do a live action Q&A, right? So it's a kind of this hybrid of why not pre-record so that we could guarantee quality, guarantee that everybody could hear everything, guarantee that they didn't like crap out because their internet went or something like that. And so we have that guaranteed quality of session. And then you have this other thing that we've never been able to have before in live, which is a live Q&A with the speaker as the session is happening. So they could clarify, so they could expand on stories so that they could hear from the audience, right? And then we would carry that over into this, basically what you and I are doing right now into a live conversation and an interview afterwards. So that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. And that was kind of how we took this and said, you know what, we're going to take a look at all the information. We're going to come up with the best solution, not just take what we did before and just do it virtually. That's a great way you did that. This year we had to do our annual event virtual as well, and Mm -hmm. learned a whole lot along the way and obviously saw some things that we could do better. That being one of them, that was really great to hear. How did you pre-record the sessions? Did you have them show up and do it live on a stage with no audience or was it a Zoom thing that was recorded or how did you do that? It depended on the speaker. So because we only have 12 speakers or whatever speakers we had, I think it was 12 this year, 
part of our brand is I form a personal relationship with every one of our speakers. We don't hire a hundred speakers and I don't know who they are and they do their own thing. So I was able to work, we were able to work individually with each speaker. So now, a couple of speakers were here in Colorado. So they were able to come over to our offices and we shot it in our studio. Most of our speakers, they're all professional. So they have their own studios and stuff. And so some were able to just produce them themselves. And then we had a couple that needed a little bit more help that were more remote. And we set them up with equipment. We walked them through it. We gave them all sorts of tutorials and instructions. And some of them we had to do a couple of times to get it right. It was kind of a mix depending on what their experience level is, what their comfort was, what their capabilities were in terms of lighting and sound and video and all that stuff. Hmm. So I can see how you, you helped them make sense of this different way to do it and created an experience that was better than expected, right? I'm sure you yeah. wowed them beyond what they thought they were going to get in a virtual seminar or virtual workshop. Yeah. And that's the feedback we got from folks, yeah. which was like, this is the best virtual event we've been to so far. We got a lot of that. It's interesting because at the beginning, my immediate thought as we were thinking this through was, how do we pre-record this without letting people know it's been pre-recorded, right? So we were going to have the speakers wear the same things when they recorded as they did on the conference. And then like, it took me like two minutes to then figure out, you know what, that is so disingenuine. And it's basically a lie. Like, I don't want to ever lie to my customers, right? That was a terrible idea, such a bad idea. <laughs> and so we very quickly said, you know, no, we're going to like be totally upfront about this and honest and let people know. And there were some people afterwards who were like, you know what? I was like very skeptical of this pre-recorded thing. And if I was going to get value from it, or if I should just watch it later or whatever. But the way that that happened, where I was able to have a conversation with the speaker and then the live Q&A afterwards. So now tell us about your book, Be Vigilant. Now, how did that come about? What is it? What prompted you to write it? Yeah. So I've been working with best-selling authors for the last 19 years, and I always thought I would write a book at some point, but I never had an idea that I felt was good enough or book worthy. I didn't want it to be a kind of a me too book. And so I just never did it. And then when I had this opportunity to become a reserve sheriff's deputy, which basically means that I'm a full-fledged police officer, I just do it for free. I go out on patrol. Yeah, it sounds crazy, right? It's All right, insane. hold on. I'm not going to let you get off the hook with this one. <laughs> Why did you do that? I mean, like, were you drunk one night and said, <laughs> hey, you know, what? I think I'm going to be a cop for free. You know what? I was just trying to keep up with my wife. You know what I mean? So she's been heavily involved in Girl Scouts. We have two daughters. And for the last 17 years, she's been heavily involved in girls. So like beyond just being like a troop leader for both of my daughters, but also like just all sorts of volunteer stuff and just super heavily involved. And I never had this kind of volunteerism going on in my life. And then I just felt like it was something that I wanted to add in. I was looking for something to do. I didn't grow up wanting to be a cop or thinking I wanted to do that or anything like that. And honestly, it was around December of 2014 Facebook posts. So the sheriff's office here, we've got a big county. The sheriff's office runs most of the law enforcement within this county, put out Facebook ads saying, hey, we're looking for people to go through a reserve academy to become reserve sheriff's deputies. I was like, man, that looks pretty interesting. That sounds kind of cool. And we have a unique department in that this is not for like parade duty or something like that. This is like you go out and you work, you work and you do everything that, that a full-timer does. You just do it 
for free. And so I was like, man, that sounds really cool. And I asked my wife and she didn't really understand it. So she said, yes, she didn't really know what she was getting herself into at the time. And I went off to this kind of like informational meeting and there was like 120 people in a room and there was like ex-military and ex-cops and all these people. And most of them younger than me. I remember walking away from that being like, you know what? They're never going to pick me. Like, why would they pick me? You know, this marketer is 45 years old. And I, I filled out the application and everything. And they actually, I got chosen, which was crazy. So I had to go through all this stuff. I had to go through the same psych evaluation, the same physical testing, the same testing and all that stuff. And then got accepted and had to go through an academy that ran from like May to November. And then after that, I had to do 440 hours of field training out on the road with a field training officer before I got certified to do patrol. That's why I wanted to do it. And everybody's aware of the difficulties we've been having in terms of relationship between community and law enforcement in the last couple of years. But this is not new. Like back then it was like Ferguson. It was, yeah. that was going on. And I just got really tired of seeing friends and acquaintances argue and complain on Facebook or whatever social media you're on. And I just wanted to be part of the solution, you know, and, and the best way that I could see to be part of creating a great relationship between the community and law enforcement was to get involved and to do it. And so that's kind of my purpose there is to just protect and serve and help people be safer, but also help strengthen that relationship in my little piece of the world that I can do it. All right. Two obvious questions. I'm sure that the listeners or viewers are thinking right now. And the first one being, what did your partner think when they first met you and thought you did what, and you're doing this for how much and why the heck are you doing this? And the second question is what's the craziest thing that's happened to you out there so far? (laughs) Uh, So when you say partner, you mean like one of the other cops? Yeah. So you get into a car or whatever with, I guess your partner for the day or the one that you're doing all your hours with, and they're talking to you and they're like, So yeah, you're a marketer, huh? Okay. makes a lot of sense that you'd be in here with me. And how much are they paying you for this? Oh, you're doing it for free, huh? Yeah. So the interesting thing is for the first six years of this, I patrolled solo. Like I didn't have a partner. I would go out and do it by myself. I would work a district. We have 11 districts in our county and I would fill in for people who are going on vacation or there's short staff. And so very recently we've started going to two man cars for that. But before that it was all solo stuff, but I get your question or in yeah. briefing or whatever. The great thing is I spend so many hours doing it and I would, I would spend most of my hours working on a specific team, which we would call the swings B team. So swing shift and it's on the B side of the week. And in fact, my book, which I'll tell you about in a second, the publishing company that I created for the book is called swings B publishing because that's my team. And so I got very close with those people and they just consider me part of the team, but I get all the time, like, why are you doing this for free? Like, I barely want to do this for money. And so people get it, but they don't get it, but there's just a lot of respect. I think they appreciate the help or always short staffed. So they just appreciate the fact that I'm there. And I think probably they're coming in assumption before they met me in the way that a lot of people look at, oh, here's a guy, he just, he wants to run around with a badge and a gun and he wants to like have some power and stuff like that. But I think like anything in life, the only way to prove people wrong on that is to prove people wrong on it and to go do the job and do it as good as anybody else does it. And so that was always my goal. My goal was always to not be treated differently because I'm doing it for free. Like if I mess up, I want you to come down on me the same way you would come down on someone who's getting paid, right? Because at the end of the day, we're talking life and death on a lot of these things. So there's no benefit to being treated differently. 
And so I think that earned a lot of respect and people just look at me as a regular deputy. They don't look at me any different, but every now and then I still get to like, especially on a rough day, like, why are you here? What are you doing? Like, why are you, why are you doing this? <laughs> and then the um, craziest thing that's happened so far. Golly, the craziest. That you can probably talk about. Man, there's just so much and there's been so much bad and there's been so much good. Everybody has a different definition of crazy. I think the funniest thing, okay. I would say the funniest thing was I actually was when I was in field training, we actually got a call about a chicken crossing the road. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was a joke, you know, because while part of our county is rural, the part that I work in is not rural. It's a <laughs> typical suburb. You don't have chickens running around. And so we got this call about a chicken crossing the road and we were just like, this is not happening. Like somebody's playing with us, obviously. So got to go check it out and whatever. I get there and lo and behold, there's that chicken. Uh, <laughs> like we're looking around for a little while and I actually had to call out on the radio. If you're unable to locate, you call out UTL. So I actually got to go like a uh, 202 Adam UTL on the chicken. And, uh, and <laughs> my, my, my computer started just lighting up with all the chat messages of everybody laughing and stuff. And like literally like 10 seconds later, this chicken saunters across the road in front of my car. And I was like, oh my God. And I actually caught that chicken and returned it to its owner. So, <laughs> it's not easy to catch a chicken. It is not easy to catch a chicken. They are, they are ornery. <laughs> and hopefully nobody had a video going while you were out there chasing a chicken. Oh, my field training officer got a, got a good picture of it. Didn't take any <laughs> video, but he got a good picture. I got some good ribbon. It was fun. That's awesome. All right. Now tell us about your book. Be yes. Yeah. So basically I started this thing thinking it was going to be completely different than anything I'd done before, which it was. But very quickly, because I was coming in with this lens that's different, right? I'm not a 21-year-old who's this is their first work experience or something like that. I'm a 45-year-old at that point in time who's had you know 25 plus years of work experience. And so I can't leave that at home. I'm definitely coming with that point of view. And we started learning about from the very first day how complacency kills, right? And this is something we talk a lot about in law enforcement because 95, 98% of our day is pretty standard and uneventful, and then things can go wrong really quick, right? And so if you allow yourself to become comfortable, you can be in some pretty big trouble. And so we talk about complacency and we talk about what it is and how to combat it. And then I started thinking about how there were things that we were doing every day that we don't talk about in those words, but there are things that we're doing in law enforcement to, I started making that connection. We're doing this to keep us present, to keep us from getting complacent. And then I started paying attention to the fact that complacency as a word is used a lot in culture, but it's kind of a throwaway word. People just use it thinking that, hey, let's not get complacent out there. Or like, oh, they're getting complacent. Or I see headlines during COVID. Complacency is it, but nobody ever talks about what it is. Like, what is it? And like, how do you actually fight it? As opposed to just saying, well, I'm not going to be complacent, like as if it's that easy, but it's not that easy. Right. And so that last piece of it was like, I started thinking complacency kills in law enforcement, it kills businesses, it kills brands, it kills personal relationships. And so I saw, man, here's an opportunity where I can write this book that kind of brings some of these lessons learned and translate them into the personal and the business world to say, what are some things that we can do every day to help us fight complacency, right? And so the idea is that complacency is not laziness. Complacency is overconfidence. And it's self-satisfaction and it's a smugness that makes us unaware of dangers, makes us unaware of threats, right? And so the opposite of complacency is not paranoia. A lot of people think that. So I have to be looking over my shoulder all the time or no, because the opposite is not paranoia, it's vigilance, 
right? And so the difference is that paranoia is based in fear, the fear of potential threats, and vigilance is based in the awareness of them. And so this book then is about how do we remain vigilant? What are specific strategies that we can use that will help us fight complacency every day in business and at home? Mm, Love it. And so give us an example of one. Yeah. So like I said, there's 10 of them. There's 10 different ones. Each one is a chapter in the book. One of the simplest ones is this idea of threat awareness, right? Understanding where your threats could come from. One of the things that I talk about in the book is like a law enforcement or military. If you've got anybody like that in your family or friends, we are notoriously difficult to go out to eat with because we are very specific about where we want to sit, right? We want to have our eyes on where the potential threats could be, not because we're paranoid, but just because we want to be able to see what's coming if we have to. And parallel to that in business and life is how do you get a 360 degree view of your threats, right? How do you look beyond the overconfidence that you have in terms of what your threats are, right? So a lot of times in business, if someone's asked you who are your competitors and you can rattle off two or three right away and what your strategies are against them, I would start to think maybe you're a little bit complacent because what you're getting is you're getting that kind of tunnel vision. You're becoming what I would call roadrunner effect. Wiley Coyote becomes mm-hmm. so focused on the roadrunner, but what gets Wiley Coyote every time is never the roadrunner. It's always something else, right? Mm, yeah. And so that can happen to us, right? We can become so focused on the competition as we've defined it that we miss new competition. We miss different industries coming into our industry or if the same thing can happen at home. We can become so overconfident that we understand what's happening in our life that things kind of blindside us. They feel like they blindsided us, but they haven't. They've been coming for a long time. We just didn't have eyes on them. And so I have a whole chapter where I talk about threat awareness and how do you build that threat awareness and how do you do it? Not in a paranoid way, but in an awareness way. I'll give you one more. So another one I talk a lot about is debriefing. So we all know kind of the brief and the debrief, right? We all do some level of briefing, whether it be weekly meetings or one-on-ones or whatever it is, we do some briefing. But if you talk to most people in business and you ask them, do you guys do debriefs right now? They might say yes, but the reality is they're debriefing things when things go wrong, right? They're debriefing things when there's blame to find or some disaster has happened. We got to figure out why. What we do in law enforcement that doesn't happen a lot in business or in personal life is we debrief big things, whether they were successful or a failure, right? So at the end of a mission, at the end of something of importance, we'll sit down and we'll say, what went right? What went wrong? What went right, but went right by accident? What went right because our competition or whoever we're we're against just made a mistake and we benefited from it, right? And so when we don't question things because things are going right, that's when we miss these little micro issues that are coming up. That's where we miss these things that we have the ability to fix early before they become something bigger, right? And so I talk a lot about the value of debriefing in terms of fighting complacency because the biggest thing that leads to vulnerability from complacency is success, ironically. So the more successful we are, the more complacent we become. We start believing the hype, right? We start believing that we are successful because of everything that we've done and all of our actions have led to that. When the reality is that's not always true. When Denver, I would tell people be a Peyton Manning. He just uh, got the ring of fame in uh, Broncos Stadium or anywhere else in the world, I would tell you to be a Tom Brady, right? And so neither one of those guys at the end of a win, just sit back and say, hey, we're going to party till next week. 
every one of them immediately to start thinking about what could we have done differently? What could we have done better? What are some vulnerabilities that maybe our competition didn't take advantage of because they didn't see them, but the next time somebody will see them, right? And you can do it in your family too. You can do it at home. Like how many times do you only kind of talk to your kids when things go wrong? They get a bad grade. They stay out too late. How many times do we actually sit down and say, hey, what went right today? You got a B plus on a test. That's awesome. How can we get it to an A? Or what can we emulate? What can we build on, right? We don't do enough of that. Talk about our successes and try and find learnings in them. And so that's another way to fight complacency with vigilance. I love it. Well, then, last question I always ask people is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received or the best piece of advice you've ever given? Okay. I love that question, first of all. Second of all, I think there's been two pieces of it. Can I give you two pieces sure. of advice? They're both really sure. quick. Yes. So one of them is from a guy by the name of Bruce Trickell. He is a speaker I've worked with. He's written a couple of different books. I just wrote a really cool book that just came out called Is That All There Is, which is pretty awesome. But the thing was from a previous book, and it was this idea that it's all about them. Okay. So it's the concept that I think a lot of us mess up with both in life and in business is making it about us when it should be about them, our customers, our constituents, our vendors, our employees. When we're marketing our products and services, are we telling people what we want them to hear or are we telling them what they want to hear and what they need to hear, right? And it's that nuance in terms of making sure you're always thinking about things in terms of making it all about them and not all about me. And it's Mm. something I think has been great for me. I come back to it a lot in terms of whenever I'm putting together materials for people to read or writing my book or whatever, how is this for them as opposed to what I want people to hear? It's the difference between doing a presentation at work that's filled with a hundred slides of all the work you did because you need everybody to know all the work you did as opposed to the two slides of the conclusions because that's really what the people in the room need. And if they want to hear about all the work you did, they can come get that later, right? And so that to me is a great mantra for a lot of different things in life. The other one was when I was back working at Coca-Cola, there was a guy by the name of Stephen Boyd. He told me this thing, one's a dot, two's a line, three's a trend. And so it's something I go back to a lot in terms of making sure I don't read in too much into one-off events and making sure that when I'm making decisions is based on an actual pattern and not based on something that's an anomaly or something like that. And I think in life, and especially in this world that we're living in now, people are way too quick to react to things without really understanding, is it a dot, a line, or a trend? So two pieces of advice. Love it. That is awesome. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you, okay, everybody, people are listening to this and say, man, I really like Len. I like what he's about. I totally agree with his book and how do I get a hold of him? How can I work with him? How can I go to his event? What's the best way to connect with you? Yeah. So right now, the best way is just go to my website, lenherstein.com, L-E-N-H-E-R-S-T-E-I-N.com. It's got everything about me. It's got everything about my book. If you're interested in a conference, you can just go to brandmanagecamp.com. That's the conference. But if you're interested in a book and where you can buy it, which you get on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you buy books online or whatever, you can get it there. But if you want to learn more about me and what the book is really about and get some free swag too, you can get some free swag there. Nice. Go over to lenhurstein.com. Awesome. Len, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Really enjoyed our conversation. 
And hopefully I don't see you in your <laughs> sheriff's uh, <laughs> gear anytime yeah. soon, because I do go by you all the time. I don't work the highways a lot. So if you're okay. staying on the highways, it should be good. It should okay. be good. Yeah. No, I appreciate you having me on. The other thing I forgot to mention is I encourage anybody out there, just reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn. Okay. I love connecting with people on LinkedIn and we can just have one-on-one conversations there. But thanks for having me, Gary. This is awesome. And thanks for like, let me go through the process of figuring out what my why is. And I have a whole chapter in my book about why and purpose and all this stuff. So it's such a great, great connection for me. This is a different use of it, but I love it and it's spot on. So Sounds great. Thanks, Len. I appreciate you. Thank you. So it's time for our segment, Guess Their Why. And instead of using Walt Disney, I'm going to use his brother, Roy. So if you know anything about Disneyland and Disney World and Disney, Walt was the visionary. He was the why guy. But if he didn't have his brother, Roy, nothing would have gotten done. You have a guy with a lot of ideas, but not the ability to implement. And he brought along with him his brother, Roy, who wasn't an idea guy, but he was an implementer. And so he took all of the ideas and concepts and thoughts that Walt came up with and made them happen, created structure, processes, systems around getting things done. And so what would you guess Roy Disney's why is? Think about that for a minute. And so for me, I believe that Roy's why was right way, to do things the right way in order to get results. People with that why are structure, process, systems people. They take ideas and build structure around making it happen predictably and consistently so that people have a predictable, consistent experience. And that's what's so great about Disney World and Disneyland is you get a consistent, predictable experience every time you go there. And it's done around the vision and the thinking of Walt Disney, but done in the way that Roy created so that people love the experience they have. So that's what I think. Let me know what you think. And thank you so much for listening. If you've not yet discovered your why, you can go to whyinstitute.com, use the code podcast50, and you can get it for half price. We do that to thank you for listening. If you love the Beyond Your Why podcast, please don't forget to subscribe below and leave us a review and rating on whatever platform you're using to listen to our podcast. Thank you so much. And I will see you and you'll hear me next week. Have a great week. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and that through today's guest, you heard how important it is to know your why and how impactful it can be in your life and the lives of those around you. Be sure to head over to whyinstitute.com and discover your why today. Remember, the more you know about yourself, the more you'll know about others. I'm Dr. Gary Sanchez, and I'll see you on the next episode.